Hi, welcome to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. Today is Wednesday, December 14th, and I'm Jessica Steinberg. I'm joined today by U.S. correspondent Jacob Magid and U.S. reporter Luke Tress. Hello to you both. Hi, Jessica. Hi, Jessica. We're going to talk today about a New York prevention unit to tackle bias and anti-Semitism, two different messages from the Israeli left, a U.N. investigator with a anti-Israel bias, and pro-Palestinian sentiments at the World Cup. Before we jump into it all, let's take a quick break. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachek's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachek Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek Team at www.sarachecklawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Okay, Luke, tell us about this New York State Prevention Unit that is vowing to crack down on anti-Semitism, which has really been on the rise in New York and New York State. What can you tell us? So on Monday in New York City, the state governor, Kathy Hochul, and uh, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, New York City Mayor Eric Adams, and Alejandro Mayorkas from the Department of Homeland Security, they attended an event at a synagogue in Manhattan which was meant to address anti-Semitism because it's, it's it's climbing, it's a big problem in New York and across the U.S. And uh, they announced a few new programs to combat the problem. One of them that Hochul announced is a new hate and bias prevention unit, which will be in the state's division of human rights. So this will have uh, an early warning detection system in local communities for hate crimes and threats. Um, it will do public education and outreach. There will be a rapid response for communities affected um, by hate crimes, uh, conflict resolution training and help filing complaints about hate crimes. And um, it's not just for Jews, it's for all hate crimes, but Jews in in New York City anyway are targeted far more than any other group. Um, This is on top of other new legislation Hochul announced last month. One will require the perpetrators of hate crimes to undergo mandatory bias training and also a statewide campaign to promote tolerance and a lot of funding for security at hate crimes targets. Was this meant to be the location for the announcement or was that sort of a surprise that it was happening at this particular event? The announcement was a surprise, but it was um, it was an event to address anti-Semitism. And in addition to what Hochul announced, uh, Mayor Eric Adams said there will be some new programs in the city to something he's been talking about recently is building a better pipeline between black and Jewish communities, which he has said has kind of de- deteriorated in recent decades since the civil rights movement. Um, so he announced that. And uh, Mayorkas also said his department, which the, the federal department, 
will help to um, increase punishments against hate crimes perpetrators, which which is also something Adams has said and, and said this week. He said there won't be plea bargains anymore for people who commit hate crimes, which has been a big complaint of the Jewish community because a lot of these people who do more minor hate crimes like assaults on the streets, a lot of times because of lax bail laws and plea bargain arrangements, a lot of times they, they get out of jail very quickly. For instance, last month, Two white supremacists threatened to shoot up a synagogue and they were arrested with weapons and a Nazi armband. And one of them is already out on bail despite this violent threat. And he's, he's out on bail. He lives near a Jewish community and, and people are concerned about that. So Adams's announcement of that probably got the biggest applause at the event, which was a lot of Orthodox Jewish people and Jewish community leaders. Okay. Thanks for that, Luke. Appreciate it. Jacob, you interviewed ex-merits MK Yair Golan and Khadash Ta'al's Ayman Ode at the recent J Street conference. What was the defining message of each? What would you, because they seem to have very different messages. Right. So as we know, the Israeli left didn't fare so well in the recent elections with uh, the Hadash Tal majority Arab party just getting five seats, labor only getting four seats, merits not even crossing the threshold. Um, so they're, they're kind of picking up the pieces and trying to figure out what to do next. And I spoke with uh, Ayman Uda, who heads Hadash Tal, along with Yair Golan, who tried to become the merits chairman, but lost to Zahaba Galon, who ended up them losing in the national r- race. Um, and I spoke to both of them because they're both planning on being part of the effort to resurrect the left. Um, and we spoke on the sidelines of the J Street conference in Washington last week. They both agree generally about the two-state model being the preferred approach, but differ on the strategy for trying to get there. Whereas uh, Yair Golan talked about the importance of separation from the Palestinians and framing it through a security lens and seeing it as something that is a problem for the Jews in Israel to deal with because it threatens the Jewish identity of the state along with the security of Jewish Israelis. Um, who are more likely to face hostile Palestinians as a result of their remaining in the West Bank and the military control over the Palestinians. So he just sees it as a Jewish problem. Where, and in addition to that, he, the response he thinks that needs to be done to address it is to flip this trend that we've been seeing over the past few decades of what he calls creeping annexation, which is this slow de facto annexation of the West Bank that's been taking over that's been taking place on the ground as a result of increased Israeli presence there. And he calls for a creeping separation. Um, that He thinks that there's no reason that the left can't advance the same kind of policy. And how this plays out, he talks about um, pulling out some 35 to 40,000 settlers in the West Bank and deep into the West Bank. Um, and, and and maybe not doing it in one false swoop, swoop like in 2005, but incentivizing people to leave their communities. Um, he somehow felt uh, still confident that this was something that was realistic in today's political dynamic, or recognizing that he'll need to get more political support. And then he talked about uh, restructuring the left and at the civil society level. With ha- he thought that there should only be ten organizations one for each sector and that then they'll work with US organ US donors and if they don't meet their specified goals then they won't get money and that will be how to more effectively um, operate on the civil society scene and the last thing he talked about was he felt that the Arab Israelis can be partners in all this effort but it wasn't didn't see it as like an essential part of the of the resurrection of the left and he criticized Ayman Uda's approach um, calling it very maximalist and, and and saying that he only wants to work with those who are 
anti-occupation or anti- and pro-Palestinian sovereignty in the West Bank and Gaza. And he Golan said uh, that he prefers Mansour Abbas's approach, which is one who says that, well, forget about the Palestinian issue. I don't do whatever you want in that arena. I'm only concerned with e- getting equal rights for Arab Israelis inside Israel. And he claimed that if Ayman Uda wants to grow, he'll have to follow in Mansour Abbas's past. Mind you that the both uh, Mansour Abbas's Ram, the Islamist Party, and Hadash Tal both got five seats each. So that's uh, Yair Golan. And then I'll quickly just share what uh, the counter, which was Ayman Uda, who said that you can't expect me to differentiate between Arab Israelis and Palestinians when most of them on both sides of the Green Line identify as Palestinians. And the border between them has been largely wiped by Israel. Israel doesn't really differentiate between Jews living inside the Green Line and those in the, set, in the settlements in the West Bank. Um, and he thinks that this Jew-only approach that only talks about the Jewish risks of, uh, of continued control of the West Bank is has been proven to fail. Look at merits that fell below the threshold this time. And only a Jewish-Arab partnership can resurrect the left. And he thought he thinks that uh, Arab Israelis make up 20% of the this mass, which is a ma- massive block of the Israeli electorate, and that when you allow people like Mansour Abbas to, to weaken it by his willingness to go with either side, um, that's, some, that's something that actually the Jewish left should oppose, and they should kind of more embrace the, the, the formula he's trying to sell in terms of partnership. He didn't really have too many specific plans, but he talked about creating an extra parliamentary body of Jews and Arabs together and trying to reach a goal of 50,000 each in the next few years, and then copying that at the political level. Um, so that that I think he was definitely the, the the formula of Jewish Arab partnership to save the left, whereas Golan um, talked more about uh, just getting moving towards the center and trying to convince other Jewish Israelis that uh, of the left's ideals. So I'm curious, did the two of them speak at all? Or you interviewed them separately? I interviewed them separately, but they did meet on the sidelines of the conference. I was told the conversation was cordial, but they definitely don't see eye to eye. It seems like there's really nothing for them to speak about because they're just looking at it from completely different places. Uh, yeah, I would agree. And I think that's probably part of the problem. I mean, it's worth noting that Yoyo Golan doesn't have a lot of support on the left, that, that he was kind of rejected in the in the primary merits. So he's kind of going to have to find new supporters, whereas Ayman Uda did receive five seats, and he's been a longstanding part of the, the camp. So he, I think he has a bit of an advantage, but it's not like he's not winning over tens of thousands of people either. So They're not even from the same left, actually. It's interesting. Thanks for that, Jacob. We're going to take a quick break. When we're back, Luke will tell us about a UN United Nations related interview that he did and that is coming up on the site. Shalom, dear listeners. This is Daniil Hartman. And I'm Yossi Klein Halevi. Together we host the podcast For Heaven's Sake from the Shalom Hartman Institute. These have been some of the most challenging days for me personally, for Israel, and for the Jewish people. And one of the ways in which I've gotten through this is that I found solace and meaning through discussions with my dear friend and study partner, Daniil Hartman. And I hope that the Times of Israel listeners will join us as we continue to tackle the pressing questions facing the Jewish people here at For Heaven's Sake, which has become the number one Judaism podcast. Well, Daniil, I'd also like to recommend the Identity Crisis podcast hosted by our colleague and friend Yehuda Kurtzer. It's a series of fantastic conversations with leading figures in Jewish life, thought, and culture. You know, for decades, the Hartman Institute has been a preeminent destination for Jewish ideas and learning. Now you 
can access Hartman Ideas on these chart-topping podcasts at shalomhartman.org forward slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll privilege to help guide you through these challenging and even unsettling times. Okay, so we're back. Luke, you've got a piece coming up about a UN investigator who you found some uh, comments that she made a bunch of years back with a very clear anti-Israel bias. Tell us about it. Tell us how you found it. So Francesca Albanese, she's an Italian human rights lawyer. She's the UN Human Rights Council's special rapporteur on human rights in the Palestinian territories. Um, she's very anti-Israel, this position, which has existed since 1993, has historically been held by people who are really harshly critical of Israel. So I went through some of her old social media posts and past comments and statements and interviews in other areas. And I found that in 2014, during Israel's war with Gaza at the time, she made a comment, um, she posted an, uh, an open letter online that said the Jewish lobby has subjugated the U.S. And uh, she also said Europe was, was basically kept from criticizing Israel by guilt about the Holocaust. And she also said around that time that the Israel lobby was, quote, in the veins of the BBC and controlling BBC coverage. And she said that the war that year, which kicked off when Hamas kidnapped and killed several Jewish teenagers, she said the war had been started by Israel's greed. So these are seen as anti-Semitic, this idea that there's uh, this nefarious Jewish lobby that is controlling governments. It's, it's these age-old anti-Semitic tropes like the elders of Zion, that like the Jews are kind of controlling governments from the shadows. Um, there are, of course, Jewish lobbies and pro-Israel lobbies, but there's obviously not this unified Jewish group that's controlling America. So it's, it's seen as anti-Semitic. And this comes after another UN investigator into Israel said earlier this year that the Jewish lobby was controlling social media, which was also seen as anti-Semitic, including by Deborah Lipstadt and Israel, the US. It was widely criticized and seen as a problem. So we have two UN investigators into Israel who have made these anti-Semitic comments in the past year or, or found that we made they made them in the past year. Albanese is also just overwhelmingly critical of Israel. She refers to it as colonial a lot. Um, she sympathized with Hamas, uh, justified violence against Israel. She said at one point Palestinian violence was inevitable. And it's she's just not seen as um, a, a fair arbiter, which is a problem for, for the UN because it really hurts their credibility. Her and her predecessors have just been overwhelmingly critical of Israel. We contacted her for comment and she she said she had made mistakes with, with those Jewish lobby comments. She acknowledged making mistakes. She said, I distance myself from those comments now and I made them before I was the special rapporteur which she was appointed special rapporteur earlier this year. Um, she swore when she took in the position, she had never done anything currently or, or in the past that would prejudice her in this position. And she had previously worked for UNRWA, the UN agency that helps the Palestinians before making those comments. Do we know the job description of this position? Yeah, so it's, um, it's a non-paid position appointed by the Human Rights Council 
They're appointed for three-year terms with a possible three-year extension. And they, they issue reports about Israel, which she issued her first one earlier this year, which was also just overwhelmingly critical of Israel. And when she takes these positions, and according to the Human Rights Council's Code of Conduct, they're supposed to be fair arbiters and, un, and unbiased and objective. And it's just it's, it's not the case for her or her predecessors or other UN investigators into Israel. Okay, thanks, Luke. Jacob, you're working on a piece about lessons from the World Cup regarding pro-Palestinian sentiments, but amidst the atmosphere of the Abraham Accords. Pray tell, please tell us more. Sure. So a lot of ink has been spilled about the cool uh, Israeli, the cool response Israeli reporters have been receiving from fans after they try to identify themselves during interviews. A lot of Free Palestine. Uh, there's this one video that definitely resonated where a Moroccan fan is telling him he doesn't want to talk to him because he's an Israeli. And then the Israeli reporter chases after him saying, but we, we have peace. Our governments have signed peace. Um, so that, that, that got a lot of retweets on Twitter. Um, so those kinds of videos, and I tried to speak with a few journal, uh, few analysts and other folks who have been on the ground to come up with several takeaways from this very pro-Palestinian atmosphere and what it means for Israel's efforts to advance its integration into the region through the Abraham Accords. Um, the main couple takeaways I think I came out with were that it's worth putting things into proportion, that there was this euphoria after the Abraham Accords and with all these lavish government ceremonies and visits from world leaders between Israel, the UAE, Bahrain, and Morocco, just to a lesser extent. But what we saw at the World Cup and what we've been seeing at the World Cup demonstrates that the feelings haven't really trickled down to the people, especially in Morocco, but more broadly in the region. I think the UAE is one exception, and we can get into that later. But um, but it does give the opportunity for Israelis to experience the true mood of the Arab street, which I think is a, a positive um, development that they weren't really able to get beforehand, even if they're, the mood is kind of kind of angry. There's also the other ha half glass full outlook of noting that the Israeli journalists were allowed to come and operate freely, that there were flights for the first time between these two countries, um, between between Doha and Tel Aviv. I spoke with Michael Milstein, who is a Palestinian analyst, who said that the Palestinian issue obviously plays a role with the massive spike in Palestinian deaths over the past year. Um, I think we're talking about over, over 200 in the West Bank and Gaza together. He, at the same time, said not to assume that this hostility would end if there's some sort of peace process, that a lot of these feelings are much more deeply ingrained and that it would take more time. Um, he did cite a Saudi friend he spoke with who talked about how the, the World Cup is known for a lot of Arabs as the Arab World Cup because it's the World Cup for the people and not the regimes. As in, while the regimes are very conflicted and, and fight one another, the people are all united and supporting all the Arab teams. So everyone in the Middle East right now is supporting Morocco, even in Algeria, um, which has a very long-standing conflict with, with Morocco. The people took to the streets in, uh, in Algeria in support of Morocco's recent win, and I'm sure we'll be doing the same if they can pull out a victory over France. The, in addition, the regime support normalization with Israel, or some of them, and the people on the ground at the World Cup are saying, we support the Palestinians. Still, um, this Saudi friend that Michael Milstein talked to noted that the euphoria that we've seen over the past few weeks 
everyone eventually is going to return to their home countries where the influence that they feel on the street is actually very limited. Um, so that's worth taking note when I think, again, putting into proportion over what this actually means. I think it's still limited. Still, Milstein warned about ignoring this mood and the street entirely. Um, and, and said that if you follow through with some of the plans that uh, Ben Gvir and Smotrich on the Israeli far right are trying to push, this really could lead the governments to maybe roll back some of the normalization steps that they've taken. He noted the fact that Qatar used to have some sort of diplomatic ties with Israel, Morocco also at one point, and they rolled those back. And that can happen again if, if these, these feelings on the street that we're seeing at the World Cup are ignored. Another way that um, I thought was interesting from hearing from analysts who are looking at what to make of these of the sentiment at the World Cup is that Hussein Ibish talked about, who's a, a think tanker in D.C., talked about how it can be really seen through the prism of this rivalry between the UAE and Qatar. And in the past, this rivalry was seen through the UAE or Qatar's support for the Muslim Brotherhood and for Islamism, and the UAE was very much against that outlet of political expression. And over the past few years, that that has become less relevant because the Muslim Brotherhood is kind of not as popular in various countries. Only it's kind of at the fringes of most of the countries that it, it, that it operates in. Um, so instead, the only way for Qatar to to advance this policy of kind of demonstrating its soft power is through other more populist issues, be it on a conservative stance on gender, be it on a conservative stance on LGBT issues and barring any sort of expression in support of them at the, at the games or barring alcohol at the games. And of course, then also being pro-Palestinian and allowing, um, there's they're, they're selling flag or giving out flags for Palestinian flags for free at the hotel hotels, um, at the markets, at the shuks, they're, they're cheaper than any other flag that, they're be, that is being sold. They're not being confiscated at stadiums, even though you're not allowed to wave a flag of a country that's not playing in, in the match. So there's clear support from the government level for the Palestinian cause, and I think it's there, seen as their response to the UAE's decision to normalize with Israel by saying, look, if you're going to normalize, we're going to be seen as try to be seen as the defender of the Palestinian cause. Um, it's ironic just because Qatar wanted to be the first to normalize with Israel, according to a few analysts I spoke with, but the UAE beat out, beat them to it. And I think now this is just like the, the, comp the, the scraps of what they feel like is the best they can do in the interim. Interesting. Really looking forward to reading that. Okay. Thank you, Jacob. And thank you, Luke, for being on today's Daily Briefing. Happy you were here with me. Thank you, Jessica. Thanks, Jessica. And we'll be back tomorrow with another Daily Briefing. In the meantime, have yourselves a good day and a good listen. Thanks for listening to the Times of Israel's Daily Briefing. And thanks to our producer, Gilad Brownstein, and to Gili Amar for this out-of-this-world music. You can find us daily wherever you find your podcasts. And on our mothership, timesofisrael.com. Like what you hear? Consider rating us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to spread the word. And be sure to check out our weekly feature, Times Will Tell, released every Friday. Until next time. Shalom. Shalom.